This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. The Bible is the most important book on earth. It is the best-selling book of all time. It is the most translated book. And it was the Gutenberg Bible that was the first book ever to be printed on a movable type printing press. Yet as Christians, we know the Bible is more than just an important or an historic book. It is the book because it is the very word of God, his special revelation to us of his own character and divine nature and his revelation of his law and ultimately his gospel, the saving work accomplished for sinners through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if somebody were to ask you today, how did we get the Bible? How did these 66 individual books written over a thousand year period by more than 40 authors become the Bible or the Bibles that we have today? What would you say? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Timothy Paul Jones. Dr. Jones is professor of Christian ministry and associate vice president at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is out with a great new DVD series that's just been released called How We Got the Bible. Dr. Jones, it is just so wonderful to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good to be with you again. Well, it's great to have you back. Why do you think it is critical for Christians to know how we got the Bible? Not just Christians, everybody, but particularly Christians. Why do we need to know this? Well, I think in the past decade or so, and I think the Da Vinci Code, the release and the popularity of that a few years ago, really was kind of a a threshold marker in our culture in which skepticism about the Bible went mainstream. And uh, so today we've got to deal with questions that we just didn't even have to deal with. People weren't thinking about them 20, 30, 40 years ago. And yet people on the street will ask, uh, you know, if you're talking to them about the gospel, they'll, they'll ask you about the lost gospels that supposedly were excised from the New Testament. Or they'll ask you about, uh, weren't there a bunch of other books that uh, that should have been in the Bible and got cut out later? They'll ask you about things like that that wouldn't have been asked in the past. And so we live in a culture in which there is an increasing skepticism toward Christianity, but also sometimes this skepticism takes a specific focus on issues of how we got the Bible. And because of that, every believer in Jesus Christ needs to be able to answer basic questions about where the Bible came from and why we believe it and why we believe these particular books are indeed the Word of God. I love it. You're exactly right. Thank you, Dan Brown, for making life that much tougher for us. But that's good. We need to be able to tell people why the Bible is the Word of God. And you know, a lot of people will look around and say, well, we've got the Koran, we've got the Bhagavad Gita, this is a multicultural world. Why is the Bible so special? What do you think, apart from the fact that it is the Word of God, but what is special about the Bible? Well, we as Christians believe that the Bible is not simply one revelation among many revelations, but rather that the Bible points without error, points with absolute authority to God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. And so in one sense, we can say with complete integrity, the Bible matters because Jesus matters, (laughs) because the Bible is the testimony to Jesus Christ. And when people ask why we believe the Bible, one of the answers that I think is a 
completely valid and helpful answer for them is to say, I believe the Bible because Jesus is alive. And what I mean by that is Jesus believed that the Old Testament was true. And so if Jesus believed the Old Testament is true and, uh, and he was raised from the dead, then I should trust him. I should agree with that if I orient my life toward Jesus Christ. And what we have in the New Testament are writings from people that Jesus sent out, that Jesus authorized, that witnessed Jesus alive or close associates of those people. And so in those instances, it's texts that testify directly to Jesus in the case of the New Testament. And so we believe the Bible matters, that the Bible is special because we believe that Jesus Christ is, is special. That is to say, he is God's revelation, God in human flesh, raised from the dead. And we believe that. And because we believe that, the Bible is a special book. Excellent. He is risen indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. So when we look at Second Timothy 3, as everybody will know the passage about Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is the first phrase in that passage there. When we talk about the Bible being inspired, being God-breathed, what exactly do we mean by that? We have to be very particular in explaining that, I know. That's right, because people are wondering, well, what do you mean? Aren't a lot of different texts inspired or inspiring texts? Uh, and so why is the Bible special in that regard? And I think what we have to help people understand is the very phrase that you used just a few seconds ago, and that is that what's really in that text is not so much inspired by God, but we can take that as meaning God-breathed. And so when we say that the Bible is inspired or God-breathed, what we are saying is that the Bible comes from the innermost essence of God. It comes from God himself. And so what we believe about the Bible is first and foremost, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, or it is God-breathed that comes from God himself. Right. Now, there have been theories on the particulars of how the Bible is inspired, but a general question people will tend to ask is, if this is the word of God, how can it be his word and yet be written by human beings. In what sense did God inspire what these authors put onto parchment? Well, what we believe about that is that God inspired this. That is to say, it comes not merely from the human authors, but from God himself, and that God inspired them in such a way that they wrote these words in their own styles of writing, in their own ways, in their own context, but that God superintended the words that they written in, they wrote in such a way that what they wrote was without error. It was that exactly what God himself intended. The big theological words for that is plenary verbal inspiration, that yes. though they were choosing words that they knew, that they were aware of, that were part of their culture and their style of writing, that God was working in that to in a, in a, in a manner in which the words that they cho chose were the very words that God himself wanted to be inked down on that parchment and to be preserved for his people. Exactly. Now, it's kind of interesting that you should mention this because I was reading uh, an old book by James Montgomery Boyce, and everybody will know, most people will know who he was. He was in the International Council on biblical inerrancy back in the late 70s. One of the things he mentioned was how many words we have continued to have to bring out to describe the way in which the Bible is inspired. And you mentioned it right there, that it's verbal, every single word. It's plenary. It's all inspired, not just parts of it. And it's also infallible and inerrant. And this is so important because each of those words describes the word of God uh, and denies some of the claims by others that the Bible is just, eh, some of it is inspired or this may seem inspired, but it's really, it doesn't mean what you think it means. 
Why is it so important to be so particular in saying it the way you said it? Well, in every age, there, there come new challenges. That's really important for us to recognize. And so what we believe about the Bible doesn't change. In other words, when we start using the word inerrancy, which wasn't being used a couple of hundred years ago, it's not that suddenly we decided that something new must be believed about the Bible. What we're, what, what's happening in that is new challenges arise, and as those new challenges arise, we have to rise to meet those and come up with new terminologies at times to affirm that which the church has always believed about the Bible. So when we say that the word, that the, the scriptures are inerrant, that comes, uh, the importance of that term comes in some sense as a response to a diluting of the word infallible. Because yeah. the word infallible, some persons began using that not in the sense in which is, it is intended, which is unable to deceive. That's what the word infallible should be taken to mean, is that the scriptures are incapable of deceiving us. And some people do diluted those, that, that terminology, and started saying, well, it just means the scriptures won't fail. That, that is, they'll accomplish their purpose. And so a word inerrancy gets kind of pulled up as, 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 a, as a term that we affirm and, and that we recognize is important to say no. What is intended is that the Bible is without error. It is inerrant because it comes from a God who is the God of truth. These words are words of truth. And you know what? A hundred years from now, there will probably be more words that we need to come up with <laughs> as new challenges arise, and that's okay. We are not coming up with new ideas about the Bible, but rather we are, in response to challenges we face, having to come up with, at times, new terminologies so that we can affirm that which Christians have believed all the way back to the earliest stages of church history and indeed back into Jewish history about the scriptures. Oh, that is such an important thing for people to understand. And I think you're absolutely right. As we continue to get new challenges and have new words twisted that once meant something else, we continue to have to clarify what the Bible is really saying when it's when we say it's inspired what we really mean by that we're going to come back dr timothy paul jones how we got the bible is our topic we'll return after this Hi, this is Janet Mefford, and in January, we are honoring the preborn and the more than 60 million babies whose lives have been tragically ended through abortion. The Ministry of Preborn is the direct competition to Planned Parenthood and the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. By equipping pregnancy centers with free ultrasounds, Preborn is able to meet abortion-minded women at their darkest hour and shine the light of Jesus. You see, when a young mom considering abortion walks into a preborn center, it's a divine appointment where she encounters the love of Christ and the opportunity to meet the beautiful life growing inside of her. I feel like it was meant for me to have this faith. This is something God gave me for a reason. 80% of women in crisis choose life after meeting their baby on ultrasound. Would you please join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 350 babies? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That 
That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. Maybe I can just have my baby. It don't matter what nobody says. The Ministry of Preborn is seeking heroes right now who will partner with them to give the gift of life to babies in crisis. Preborn believes it is God's heart to save the preborn from the abortion genocide. Would you please join with Preborn and all of us here at Janet Meffer today to help choose life for 350 babies? All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes toward the cause of life. One ultrasound session costs $28 and for a gift of $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. But any gift of any amount will help. $100, $200, or even a gift of $15,000 will buy an ultrasound machine. Call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Great to have you along. My guest, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, he is out with a really great DVD series, How We Got the Bible. And boy, do we really need to understand how we did get the Bible and why we can trust it. We've been discussing how the Bible is inspired. It's not just something that's inspirational in the way some fiction might be, but it's inspired, God-breathed, as 2 Timothy 3 talks about, and also inerrant and infallible. Now, one of the things, Dr. Jones, that people will mention sometimes his point of clarification is someone will say, well, you say the Bible is inerrant and yet I have this version of the Bible that had mistakes in it or added in some things that shouldn't have been added in. And then I have this other Bible that doesn't include that particular section of verses. So how can it be inerrant if this translation is one way and this translation is another way in this particular area, this particular book of the Bible? So we will say sometimes it's inerrant in the original autographs. Would you tend to include that when you were speaking about the inerrancy of the Bible? Yes, we need to include that, that when we speak of inerrancy, we are speaking of inerrancy as it was originally written. And it's helpful just in in terms of apologetics, in terms of talking to people, to help them distinguish between a copying variant and an error. An error is something that was something affirmed in the original text that was false. That's what an error would be. So when we say inerrant, we're saying in the text as it was originally written, in the autographs, that in that text, there were no errors. Now, what that doesn't mean is that somehow that there has been something where uh, every copy of the Bible has been protected from error. There have been errors in that, but those aren't really errors. Those are what I would call copying variants or variations in the text, such that we see in any text that is copied by hand over hundreds of years, there are points at which there are copying variants, copying variations that we see in those texts. Very good. Very good. Now, the other thing that we need to also discuss is that the Bible is sufficient. This seems to be an area in which modern Christians are falling short in really holding to the sufficiency of Scripture. What are we talking about there? When we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, we're talking about two different things, but both of which are very important. Number one, it has been copied with sufficient accuracy to preserve the message that God inspired. 
so it's copied with sufficient accuracy. That isn't to say there aren't some copying variations, but it is copied with sufficient accuracy to have the message in it still there that we can be able to read and understand that God originally inspired. But sufficient is also in another sense as well. That is that it is sufficient to tell us what we need to know to live the life that God has called us to live. It's sufficient for that. We don't need to for, for our spiritual lives, for our, our health and our wholeness in terms of our, our relationship with God. We don't need to draw from a whole bunch of other sources in that. We, the scriptures are sufficient to guide us in the life that God has called us to live. Now, that doesn't mean we don't obviously need to learn from other sources or look at other sources, but none of those other sources are authoritative and sufficient for us to live the life that God has called us to live in Christ, to trust Him, to follow Him. Scripture alone is sufficient in that sense. Wonderful. Now, one of the things that you get into is how the Bible actually got to us, starting with the Old Testament. A lot of people will look at the Old Testament and even say, why do we even need the Old Testament? We're not the Israelites. We're Gentiles. We've been grafted in. Uh, We just need the New Testament because that talks about Jesus. But why is the Old Testament important? And how was it that it got from God to us, as you say? Well, one of the things, if somebody says, why do we really need to look at the Old Testament? I ask them something to this effect. When you watch The Lord of the Rings, do you start with Fellowship of the Ring or do you start with The Return of the King? <laughs> so I ask them that question right there. Which one are you going to start with at that point? And of course, they look at you, well, of course, you'd start with Fellowship of the Ring, because if you start with something later, then the rest of it's not going to make any sense. And my point is, exactly. When you look at the Old Testament, what you're seeing is the necessary and essential backstory for the coming of Jesus. And so if you start trying just to jump straight into the New Testament, we've got to recognize that the New Testament is packed with just all the way through references to the Old Testament. And they aren't simply there as, um, oh, isn't this nice? This, this was something that points back to something in the past. But they viewed the story of, of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and, the, and all of the way through the Old Testament as the necessary way of understanding what Jesus was up to in his work. And so we've got to understand, number one, that the Old Testament is absolutely necessary to understand the story of Jesus. Christ. So how we got the Old Testament, the Old Testament, and you think about it, it's an amazing thing that over uh, over a thousand years, uh, more than a thousand years, that the Old Testament is being pulled together, being written, being inspired by God, and being brought together hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, and brought together into this text that is preserved accurately, adequately, sufficiently for us still today to get the message that God inspired through his prophets and through kings and psalms, psalmists and poets and all of that, all the way through the history of the Israelite people. Right. Now, what's interesting, I had mentioned about the writers, and I mentioned parchment, but the Old Testament writers, you say, sometimes would write actually on rock. Uh, How was the Word of God written down uh, throughout the Old Testament? Well, it was written down, as you said, in a variety of ways. So we find that one of the one of the earliest references to actually writing is, of course, in Exodus, where God Himself wrote uh, on the stone, on the stone tablets. So we know that some early forms were written on stone. Uh, we find uh, examples in the ancient world of sometimes they would even for we don't know for certain that the Old Testament was ever done this way, but sometimes texts were written by putting plaster on a rock and then uh, putting the writing into the plaster, and sometimes 
sometimes even painting it at that point um, that was written on leather. It was written on a whole variety of different forms. But what we find is it very quickly ends up in scroll forms. And part of the reason for that is that uh, it's portable. And, and so it wasn't that uh, the Word of God was not something that was to be only in one place, in Jerusalem or wherever it might be, and that people had to go there to read it, but rather it was copied for people because it was intended to be heard, to be understood, to be memorized, to be learned, to be obeyed, to be followed by all the people. It wasn't something that was simply the, the domain or the property of a priest in, in a temple somewhere or something like that. It was something that was copied and was circulated uh, for, for writings in the ancient world, circulated relatively widely uh, for such writings as that. Yes. Now, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, this was a big development in the trustworthiness of the Old Testament. What, what was the significance uh, for us as Christians in the discussion? Discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So when we find the Dead Sea Scrolls, we've got to think about all the way back into the 1940s, in which before the time that the Dead Sea Scrolls begin to be discovered in 1947 and following, that the oldest the oldest portion of the Old Testament that we had was from almost a thousand years after the time of Jesus. And so you think about this, that, that even though the Old Testament was from hundreds of years, thousands of years before the time of Jesus, that the earliest copy was from almost a millennium after the time of Jesus. And so many, especially among liberal scholars, had come to the conclusion, well, there was no settled consensus about anything in the Old Testament. Even the text itself wasn't settled until long, long after the time of Jesus. Well, what happens in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that, for example, the Isaiah Scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls, it differs it almost doesn't, there's almost no differences at all outside of just minor spelling differences and things like that. And that scroll was copied before the time of Jesus. And so mm-hmm. what it lets us know is that the, the copying process of the Old Testament was a stable and reliable process. Now, in some of the other books of the Old Testament, there are, it's clear that there were different forms of different texts and some variations, particularly in First and Second Samuel and some things like that. But even with all those variant forms we see, in the text, it is clear that the process by which the Jewish people preserved the scriptures was a reliable process that they were following, and that the text as we have it from them is a trustworthy representation of the original text. And it's really important for us to recognize that, that that's the significance, one of the many areas of significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, yeah. Now, when we talk about the New Testament canon, which we're going to get to, most people will discuss, well, the, the letters of Paul had circulated to the churches, and you had the gospel writers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what about the Old Testament? How was the canon of the Old Testament determined? Well, there's that's something that's a, a topic of, of discussion, but I think one of the things we have to recognize is Jesus gives us a glimpse into some important things about the Old Testament. And if we need look at the Old Testament, we need to take our canonical cues, we might say, from Jesus. And there's a couple of different examples, and I'll give one of them, of how we know what Bible Jesus was using. He, in Luke chapter 24, mentions the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, that three-part division of the Old Testament, and the Psalms included more than just the Psalms, but the Psalms were the dominant book in that third section. That points to, that represents the Hebrew Aramaic 
text of the Old Testament as it has come down to us through the, through the Jewish people and has been preserved out over the ages. And that lets us know that Jesus was using a, a settled text. It's his way of referring to the whole Old Testament. And, and it's, he was using a text that was not in flux, not uh, a whole bunch of different people with different canon variations or anything like that. But there was a settled text that he was using that he viewed as the Word of God. And this is the same set of books that he would have been using that we have in what we might call a Protestant Old Testament today, right. this Hebrew and Aramaic canon that he had inherited, so to speak, from, uh, from the, over the ages, and uh, that he viewed as the words of his father, and he trusted as being a trustworthy uh, text that he could believe, that he could proclaim, and that indeed, he said, is all about himself. It all pointed forward to him and what God was doing through him. That's excellent. And how many ancient copies do we have of the Old Testament? Of the Old Testament, it's it's a variant number in the sense that there's so many this uh, you know scrolls of just the Torah, there's scrolls of just uh, all the different things like that. But about a third, so there's over a thousand scrolls or so in the Dead Sea Scrolls. About a third of those, uh, some roughly being uh, fragments or portions of the Old Testament, as well as several excellent um, scrolls from the Middle Ages. Very good. Hang on just a moment. We're going to go to another break. Dr. Timothy Paul Jones with us explaining how we got the Bible. We'll be back. Stay with us. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Thank you for being with us. My guest, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones. He is out with a great DVD series called How We Got the Bible, and we were discussing in particular the Old Testament. Now let's talk about the New Testament a little bit, Dr. Jones, because the New Testament got to us as well. This was, in some respects, a a different uh, scenario than the Old Testament. But how did the New Testament come to us? The New Testament, looking at how it starts out with the Apostle Paul's letters, which are some of uh, probably Galatians and First and Second Thessalonians, are some of the earliest portions of the New Testament. So Paul begins writing those not so much to teach people about the Christian faith, but rather to remind them of and to apply the truths they already know. Now, what that lets us know is that that the the proclamation about Jesus begins as an evangelistic proclamation as people go throughout the world. So in other words, they don't start out writing it down right off the bat, which was totally uh, normal in in ancient settings such as that in a a culture which uh, very few people could actually read. But it begins to be proclaimed to call people to trust in Jesus Christ. And then some of the earliest writings of the New Testament are these that Paul writes in which he is helping them to apply that which they've already learned about Jesus. 
Very good. So so when Bart Ehrman and those who follow him, this is this uh, North Carolinian uh, scholar that people will often refer to in debates uh, on whether or not the Bible is reliable. Uh, this idea will come up that really the, the canon was corrupted because the people who were in the majority were the ones who really determined what it was. What is the truth about how the canon was closed and the process by which books, say, like the Apocrypha were excluded? An excellent question, one that every Christian needs to be able to answer right now because we do hear this over and over. And here's the most important thing that every believer in Jesus Christ needs to be aware of and needs to remember, and it's that every text in the New Testament is traceable back to an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ or a close associate of an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so we could go through all of them, but just through a few of them, Matthew, of course, being uh, an apostle, Mark being somebody who traveled traveled with the Apostle Peter and translated his stories about Jesus to audiences throughout the Roman Empire, and, and Luke being an associate of, of the Apostle Paul and John being a, a disciple of Jesus himself. So in every instance, when Christians are asking the question of, is this writing authoritative? The terminology they would have used then was, is this something to be read publicly in the church? That's the terminology they would have used for authoritative writings. But is this writing, they, when they were looking at these, they they aren't asking, do we like it? They aren't asking, is the, there's some sort of political reason that we should accept or not accept this writing? They are asking, can we trace this back to an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ or a close associate of an eyewitness? And if they couldn't, they rejected that writing. So all of these writings of, of, that are supposedly you know, lost gospels and all of that, they weren't cut out. In fact, they weren't cut out at all. They were never part of the canon to begin with. Right. But they weren't rejected for any reason other than they could not be reliably traced back to an eyewitness or close associate of an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus. So in other words, the the resurrection of Jesus and his proclamation becomes the authoritative standard for the text in the New Testament from the very beginning. Excellent. So when we're talking about the preservation of the text throughout the years, certainly we had times in which the scribes, you know, the scribes were copying it all down. And there are those who say, you know, the scribes would make mistakes sometimes. They would spell things wrong or a word would be left out or so forth. How was the process conducted throughout church history in preserving the text exactly right? I know it wasn't always exactly right, but generally speaking, what were the guidelines that were used? First off, we have to understand that the, the Christians inherited at some level a, an importance on the copying and preservation of the text from the Jewish people. And so remembering that the earliest Christians were Jews, and there was already this strong emphasis among the Christians early on coming from that background on preserving the text rightly. And we see very early in the text that there are various times in which it's clear that there are some rules begin to emerge for the copying of the text, because we start to see different patterns of, for example, abbreviations of the word Jesus or abbreviations of the word God, things like that, that start occurring not simply in one area or one place, but a variety of places all over the Roman Empire. Christians are having using the same abbreviations. And they think, mm. 
what difference does that make? Well, it means that what emerges very early is basically a set of shared rules for how we do, what we do with the text at that point, and that lets us know that. And here's what we have to recognize as well, is that the New Testament had so many copies made of it. In fact, there's well over 5,000 copies or fragments of copies that survive to this very day from the ancient world, more than any other text in the ancient world. Compare that well over 5,000 from the, the New Testament to 210 copies of, uh, of Plato's writings, for example. So more than any other text in the ancient world. And because of that, we are able in almost every instance to be able to use those, to compare those, to look at these many copies that were carefully copied, and to uh, compare those to one another, and to determine what the original reading was of the text. And in that handful of instances, and it is a small handful compared to the text as a whole, in that small handful of instances in which it is uncertain what the original wording of a text was, there's not one of those questionable little fragments or bits of the text that affects anything that we believe about God or about his work in the world. And so in almost every instance, the text is recoverable of being able to figure out what it originally said. And in the few instances where it isn't recoverable, these tiny little spots in the text of a verse here or a verse there or a few words here and there, none of those affect what we believe about God or about his work in the world. Very good. Now, when we talk about the Bibles that we have nowadays, and there are myriad translations, obviously, in probably all of our homes, we have a number of different translations of the Bible. We take it for granted, I think, a lot these days that we can pick up a Bible that we're literate and we actually can read the Bible. But it's interesting to go back in church history and and look at what it cost men like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe to get the Bible to us. Explain a little bit about the history of the Bible and how controversial it was really back in the 15th century to be able to get a Bible into the hands of the people. Well, particularly in the English-speaking world, it was a costly thing to bring the Bible to us. So we've got a man such as Wycliffe, uh, such as John Wycliffe, who oversaw a translation of the Bible into English, and uh, he had the the dubious distinction of uh, when the in the late four, late fourteenth, uh, early fifteenth century, the Bible got declared illegal in English, and so as a result of that, in part and as well as some other things, John Wycliffe was decreed by a Roman Catholic council that even though he was already dead, he was to be burned, uh, dug up and burned at the stake. Oh, <laughs> so he right. had that distinction right. of even after he was dead, being dug up and burned uh, for, for his faith and for his translation of the Bible into mm. English. And his uh, ashes were thrown in the River Swift. And uh, according to one later chronicler, it says that, uh, and they were carried out into the ocean and spread around. And thus, this became an analogy for what happened with his teachings, that they ended up spreading uh, throughout the world. And so that's just to give one little example of the degree to which, yeah, we pull an English Bible off of our shelf and don't realize that there was a time when it was considered to be subversive, uh, that for, for an English Bible to exist, there was a time when it was feared because they did not want to put the Bible in the hands of ordinary people because they feared if the church lost control of the Bible that the church would uh, would be, there would be a supplanting of the, the church's authority and power. All of these things were very real things and cost people their lives, hundreds of people their lives, to get the Bible into English and to us today. Incredible. So yeah, when you talk about Wycliffe, the fact that they dug him up again just to burn him again, that's a lot of hatred over, over the Bible, for sure. 
Yes, if you think about that uh, today, uh, we look at that, and and every Bible we have, Wycliffe and Tyndale in particular, uh, what they did really shapes and influences even the Bibles that we have today, and, and that we can treat it so flippantly and uh, assume, you know, having a Bible, and uh, that was a precious thing that people were uh, were willing to die for to get the Bible into English and into the hands of ordinary people. Oh, for sure, and and you know that that's a really important point I think to look back and to church history to see these great men of God who were willing to pay such a high price just to get the Bible to us translated and into our own hands. We're going to come back. Dr. Timothy Paul Jones and I discussing how we got the Bible. We'll return right after this on Janet Meffer Today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International, she's learning to share her faith, and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now, and you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5, or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at Janet Mefford. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not an insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Such an interesting history lesson here on how we got the Bible with Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, a great DVD series out on this topic and and such a great way really that you could use with a Bible study or a Sunday school class, Dr. Jones, to educate people on the history of the Bible. And that's exactly what I wanted in this. Here's what I realized uh, and what really brought a passion in me for doing this. I realized I'd written several books that were responding to uh, attacks on the Bible. I'd written Misquoting Truth, Responding to Bart Ehrman. I'd written The Da Vinci Code Breaker uh, in response to The Da Vinci Code and written a book called Conspiracies in the Cross that was about a variety of different conspiracy, you know, supposed conspiracy theories about Jesus and the Bible. And I realized, why don't, what, what about writing something that is going to be positive? 
positive to prepare people before they hear these things. And so really wanted to write something that would be readable, that would be easy for a high school student even to be able to read before they go to college. And so that's why it's packed with pictures. It's packed with all sorts of charts and things like that, simply because I want to be able to equip people before they face the challenges so that even if they don't remember everything I've written, what they will remember is that there is a good answer for the challenges that they're hearing. Excellent. So we were discussing Wycliffe and how it was a very dangerous thing uh, many centuries ago to possess a Bible. As you mentioned, in 1408 in England, it was illegal to translate or to read the Bible in common English without the permission of a bishop. So by the time we get to uh, around the 16th century, you have the Gutenberg Bible as the very first Bible printed on movable type. This was a breakthrough. Speak a little bit to the significance of the fact that for the first time, there was a movable type printed Bible that was available. And what that meant over time, uh, over the next several centuries, is that the Bible became increasingly accessible. And so it went from something that was uh, kept in in just a very few places that people didn't have access to. And then by the time you get to the the middle of the 1500s, you have uh, a decree coming down from the King of England to place a Bible in every church. And it was chained in the church, not because they were trying to keep people from it, but precisely the opposite. It was to keep it there so nobody would take it away, and anybody could come and page through the Bible for themselves. And so to think about that, that's over the space of a century. Um, Suddenly the Bible goes from being just in a very few places, um, and and, and churches not even having a complete copy of the Bible in some instances, and even if they did, it wasn't accessible to the people, to suddenly over the space of just a century, then it's available in every single English church for anybody to go and page through it and, and to look at this Bible, and, uh, and it, it, in, it includes an increase then of people's uh, desire to become literate, and over, over the centuries, the, the Bible has this profound effect um, as it becomes more and more and more accessible uh, to people, especially in the English language. Absolutely, and it's neat to see, the, kind of trace how we got the Bible we got today, where we have Erasmus, for example, uh, publishing this Greek edition, and then that is used later, you know, kind of forms the basis for Luther's translation when he's in the Wartburg Castle, which leads to Tyndale. I mean, all of these, you know, markings in history that were so significant in being able to bring us what we have in our homes today. It's just, it's incredible when you look at it all in detail. It is. And, and Erasmus is one of my favorite people. So there's a painting of Erasmus that hangs in my dining room. So oh. Erasmus <laughs> is, is one of my heroes because he brought the first uh, New Testament into uh, like a published New Testament in Greek, made it available. Before that, of course, the New Testament had been simply scattered in all these uh, fragments that uh, many of which hadn't even been discovered. I mean, when uh, uh, Erasmus just had a few copies in Greek of the, of the New Testament uh, when he uh, assembled this, but he brought together together and, and developed this text, uh, this Novum Instrumentum, it, well, Omne it was called, it, which was a, a text that had the Greek New Testament, alongside the Latin, actually, in, in his original edition of it, uh, had the Greek New Testament there for people to be able to read the scriptures in the original languages. And this was something that Martin Luther was reading this, and this was one of the things that triggered his understanding uh, and shaped his understanding of salvation by grace through faith alone. Right. This is 
uh, a version that comes uh, later on from Erasmus's version is what uh, William Tyndale ends up using. Um, I have one of my most prized possessions. I have a, 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 a copy of this that was used in one of John Calvin's classrooms uh, in Geneva, a Greek New Testament that was one, used in that classroom in Geneva uh, that comes from, and it is a descendant of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. And so all of the reformers, what they are, are going back to is the original sources. They're going back to the New Testament, reading it in the original languages, and it shapes and reshapes the world at that point in terms of their proclamation of the gospel and their understanding of the good news of God in Christ. Oh, for sure. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my recollection is that it was Erasmus's text, wasn't it, that allowed Luther to see the correct uh, translation of justification, that it wasn't infusion, but imputation. That's right. It was that in, in reading Romans and Galatians, and, and when he saw that uh, in this tower uh, you know, experience that he has, um, it's, it's that, that he understands this, um, remembering that he was uh, a child of, or he was in the context of, would be a better way to put it, of the Renaissance, in which everybody is saying, go back to the sources, go back to the sources. Well, he goes back to the sources, and he finds that much of what he has been taught by the church did not represent what Scripture itself said, and that's part of what shook uh, what he thinking and, uh, and and drove him to nail those theses onto the uh, Wittenberg Chapel door, uh, that, that signal event that uh, brings about or begins, kind of triggers the Reformation. Right. Now, it's interesting when you keep going and you see, of course, Tyndale, the father of the English Bible, you know, his translation really formed the basis for the King James Version, which last, you know, lasts into our own day. Uh, what do you say, though, on the issue of the King James Bible and that being the most accurate translation versus some of the more modern translations? What should we understand about older being better? Okay, it's a great question on that, and, and many people have that question. The King James Version, of course, being translated from a descendant of Erasmus's text uh, that he, he had used, and Erasmus only had a handful, a very small number of Greek manuscripts, and Erasmus did a great job, the best he could, pulling together an accurate Greek New Testament from what he had. But the fact is that in the centuries after that time period, many, many more manuscripts have been discovered and older manuscripts than Erasmus had. And there are times when it's clear that Erasmus was using Greek texts that were not the best of the Greek texts. Now, when I say that, it, I recognize that uh, these, so that so the newer Greek New Testaments are more accurate, that is to say they're more representative of the original first century text of the New Testament. But I think what's most important in that is to recognize that even between Erasmus's Greek New Testament and the, the best and the newest one that I have right here on my desk, between those, there is only a minuscule set of differences between them comparatively. Okay. So well over 90% agreement between these different New Testaments. And so it's important for us to recognize that, yes, there are variations between Erasmus's text that he collated and the text that we may be using today to translate Bibles today. But the overwhelming agreement of them, should that, that should overshadow any of the differences that there stands between them. Yeah, very good. Well, when we have different translations of the Bible. I know we have a lot of different ways that the Bible is translated. We have the dynamic equivalents and the formal equivalents, and we have kind of the paraphrase versions. What do you tend to believe is the best form of translation? All translations do some sort of, uh, of kind of 
of interpreting of the text. And so we've got to recognize that there's no such thing as a word-for-word translation of the Bible, right. because if it was word-for-word, you wouldn't understand it in English because right. of the fact that the grammar and, and everything is, is so different in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and, and English. And so we've got to recognize that there's, there's no such thing as a word-for-word translation that brings it over exactly. But I think it's important that we get as close as we can to the text as it originally was. And so I encourage people, do your study from a what would be called a formal equivalent translation. Uh, and, and do your study from a text that, that really is trying as close as possible, as much as possible, to represent that original text. And, and there's several of those uh, that, that are out there, the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, right. uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, several of those really work very hard to get as close as possible to the wording of the original text. And, and in that, we're not pretending that somehow if you use one of these, it is word for word from the original text, but it's so important that we put as little between us and the original text as possible. And that's what a, a formal equivalent translation does, is it tries to put as little as possible between you and that text so that if something is ambiguous in the original text, rather than trying to fix it and interpret it, it leaves it ambiguous for us to wrestle with that in English, just as we would have to wrestle with it in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. Very good. Well, such a great series, as I've been telling you, this DVD series, How We Got the Bible from Rose Publishing, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, joining us this hour. And it's gone very quickly, but so informative. Dr. Jones, I really thank you for being with us. It was great to have you here today. Great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Oh, thank you again. And thank you for tuning in to Janet Mefford today. We're always delighted to have you along. Our website is JanetMefford.com. Thanks a lot for listening and God bless. This hour has been brought to you by Preborn. Help us save 350 babies' lives by the end of January through a gift of one free ultrasound. $28 saves one life. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com.